0: Do you ever feel like apps are just controlling your life? Like they really get inside your brain? Well, good news. You're not imagining it. Whether they realize it or not, app developers know how to take advantage of how our brains work.
1: For example, there's a behavioral principle called stimulus control, which means that you're structuring your environment in a way that it's really conducive to making behavior change. You know, technologists don't talk about stimulus control, but we have reminders, app notifications. We have things that cue behavior.
2: That's Jamie Hefner. And she isn't an app developer, well, at least not for the most part. She's a clinical psychologist who's working on apps that use those psychological tricks to keep people healthy.
0: Specifically, Jamie and her fellow researchers are trying to help people quit smoking. And they think this kind of technology could have a big impact.
3: I think of apps as really allowing behavior science to have a renaissance. That's psychologist
2: Jonathan Bricker. He's been working on technology to help people live healthier lives for more than a decade. And he says smoking is just the start. From GeekWire.com in Seattle, I'm Todd Bishop.
0: And I'm Claire McGrain. Welcome to Health Tech, the podcast where we take you to the cutting edge of digital health. Stay with us.
4: GeekWire's Health Tech podcast is brought to you by Providence St. Joseph Health's Digital and Innovation Group leveraging best-in-class digital tools to relentlessly reimagine health and healthcare. Follow them on Twitter at ProvInnovation, that's twitter.com slash P-R-O-V Innovation. Providence St. Joseph Health's digital and innovation group, making it easier, more collaborative, and more rewarding to take charge of your health.
0: Today on Health Tech, we're going to learn how Jamie and Jonathan are using apps to keep people healthy. But first, let's learn a little more about them.
3: I'm Jonathan Bricker. I'm a psychologist and a scientist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in the University of Washington. And I have a research lab that focuses on helping people live healthier lives. So we use behavior science, we use technology, and we use apply those things to help people quit smoking. Later on, we're hoping to focus also on weight loss.
0: Jonathan is working on an app called Smart Quit, which is being commercialized by a Seattle company called Tomorrow. Jamie, who you heard earlier, works in a similar field, but she focuses on helping people who have a
1: particularly hard time quitting tobacco. I'm Jamie Hefner. I'm an assistant member, uh, which is sort of like an assistant professor at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And my work also focuses on helping people live healthier lives, primarily focused on tobacco cessation. And within that area of tobacco cessation, sort of specific populations of smokers, like people with mental health conditions and smokers with other addictions.
0: Smoking is still a big public health concern in the United States. And although it can cause all sorts of health issues, there's
1: one that's a particularly big problem. Smoking is the number one preventable cause of cancer, and it's responsible for about a third of all cancer deaths. So it's hard to make the case that there's something that's going to be more impactful than working on tobacco use. Of course, all of those other areas are important, I don't want to neglect that, but it is the number one preventable cause of cancer.
0: Smoking hits some groups particularly hard. Namely, people who have other mental health problems or other addictions that make it very hard for them to quit.
1: People with heroin dependence are actually more likely to die of tobacco use than there are of the heroin addiction. So, that's kind of the approach that we take when we're talking to addictions providers about why it's important to address tobacco use in their patients, that this is sort of an overall health issue that's really important, um, you're trying to get this person to start making some big changes in their life that will change their family relationships, their physical health, their spiritual health. And we can't just leave this tobacco issue sitting there. It's a big issue.
3: I think of apps as really allowing behavior science to have a renaissance because you carry a smartphone with you all the time. And so here's an opportunity to be able to reach someone with useful skills for staying motivated, for dealing with cravings or dealing with habits that are not helpful to them, and being able to give them skills that can track that behavior, get rewarded for changing that behavior, getting support. So here's a way to take advantage of this technology that people are carrying around with them all the time.
0: Jonathan and Jamie's apps are largely based on a therapy called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, or ACT. It's a relatively new kind of behavior therapy and it basically helps people overcome intense negative feelings like anxiety or a nicotine craving.
3: It teaches you to be aware of that and that's number one. And the second, it teaches you to be willing. And being willing is another way of saying just letting this feeling pass, letting this craving pass, letting this anxiety pass on its own without you doing anything about that. And for a lot of people, that is a discovery because for so long, they've been learning ways to avoid, avoid meeting people that maybe make them anxious or going to parties if they're socially anxious or giving speeches. Or in this case, they smoke cigarettes because it allows them to avoid the feelings of an intense craving, which are very uncomfortable. And so ACT teaches a set of skills on how to be willing to have these uncomfortable experiences. The third thing it does is it helps you stay inspired. It focuses on what's really, really important to you in your life, your values. So caring for your children or loving your spouse or discovering new things, whatever are the things that are like your personal statement, your personal mission statement, the things that you'd like to be remembered for, the things that really deeply matter to you. So it's being aware, being willing, being inspired. And what we've done is we've translated this therapy model into these very short, quick modules that we actually first started developing as a telephone intervention with a counselor, and then to our app, which uh, has been called Smart Quit. But we found ways to make it a public health intervention to basically bring this new behavioral treatment program to people who would never otherwise think of seeing a mental health professional to address these problems.
0: Jonathan's app, Smart Quit, has a whole catalog of exercises he's developed to help users build the skills of ACT therapy.
3: One very simple one is five senses. So you have a, a narrator guide you through noticing one thing you see, one thing you hear, one thing you smell, one thing you taste, et cetera, et cetera. And you do that in about 45 seconds. And the purpose of that is to see that there are is a whole context of sensory experience around you that is beyond just having a craving or beyond just having a negative thought in your head. So you see the larger context of your of your inner experience. And that is very centering for people. It helps them see that they're more than just the craving or the or the judgment or or the feeling of anxiety that they're having. So that's one example. We have that in audio narration, and we also have it in in a paragraph that they can read if they don't want to listen to an, an audio narration. So we give them different modalities for learning this material. Another exercise, for example, is called leaves on a stream. So imagine you're sitting beside a gently flowing stream, and on that stream are leaves, and on those leaves are your thoughts. Place each thought on a leaf, and let each leaf float down the stream, off into the distance, as you sit and just watch.
0: When someone is feeling a craving, they can go into SmartQuit and choose an exercise that will help them push past it. But the app is also proactive. It reaches out to people with push notifications and tries to draw them in and keep them using the treatment.
3: There's a lot of research that goes into how the push notification is worded and when it's presented to someone, when in the day. So we have a push notification that will present pre of uh, different exercises. And I call them the fortune cookie version, really, really brief versions of the exercise to pique people's curiosity and say, oh, what's that about? Leaves on a stream, five senses. Or the, the puppy exercise, what's that about? And then they click on it and it takes them to that exercise and then they get the full exercise. So, that's, so they can go in when they're needing it or we, we go to them. There, there's a lot of different design decisions we made based on our research on, on how that was set up.
0: What is the puppy exercise?
3: Okay. So the puppy exercise, <laughs> puppy exercise is about teaching um, self-compassion. So imagine you see this cute little puppy. And we have this picture of this really cute little puppy. And you say, and notice that it's really, really scared. And it almost got hit by a car. What would you do with this puppy? Would you give it a cigarette? No, of course you wouldn't. No, you'd comfort this puppy. You would hold the puppy. You'd say, it's okay. It's all right. You'd help calm the puppy down. Now, here's a puppy that's stressed. What would you do for yourself when you're stressed? Would you have a cigarette? And so we help people make the connection by switching perspectives to something that they can feel affinity for and feel warmth and connection and caring for it, and say, you know, when you're stressed, you wouldn't want to give yourself something that's, that's harmful, and so what's something kind you can do for yourself when you're feeling stressed instead of having a cigarette? And so it immediately pulls for a, a feeling of self-compassion by starting with, with an other.
0: This intersection of health and technology is already having an impact. People using SmartQuit are three times more likely to quit smoking than people trying on their own. So what can we learn from the work Jamie and Jonathan are doing? And what is their perspective on how tech is coming into psychology? We'll find out after this break. GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast is
4: brought to you by Providence St. Joseph Health's Digital and Innovation Group. Helping to shift the industry from sick care to health care. Providence St. Joseph Health empowers people to take a greater role in managing and improving their health. Building on Providence's history as a disruptor, the Digital and Innovation Group leverages best-in-class digital tools to reimagine a better consumer experience in healthcare. Building healthier communities requires meaningful and personalized relationships that make Providence St. Joseph Health a trusted partner in people's lives. Follow the Digital and Innovation Group on Twitter at ProvInnovation. That's twitter.com slash P-R-O-V innovation.
0: Now back to the show. Welcome back. Before the break, we heard about how Jonathan has adapted acceptance and commitment therapy for his Smart Quit app. And ACT is a great tool for most smokers. But some smokers have other mental health problems that make quitting a lot more complicated. Jamie works at these groups, particularly people with other addictions or mood disorders like depression. She says one of the biggest challenges these people face is the stigma around mental health conditions. Often patients will think their other issues mean they just aren't capable of quitting. And often family members and even doctors will tell them the same thing. If they do attempt to quit, the symptoms of nicotine withdrawal also pose a challenge. They're very similar to many symptoms of mental health disorders, and that can scare patients away from trying to quit because they think it will make their mental health worse.
1: So we help people build coping skills. So we also help them understand that those symptoms are normal and part of the quitting experience, and it doesn't mean that their mental health symptoms are getting worse. One of the approaches that we're using right now is a treatment called behavioral activation therapy, and it's a treatment that's designed for depression. And the idea is that when people start to get depressed, they start to withdraw from their usual activities people that they normally would be spending time with. And when they start withdrawing in that way, it can actually make the depression worse because you're no longer getting the same sort of reinforcement that you would from your environment. So the goal is to just get them activated again, doing things that are either important or enjoyable. So we help them identify what what their values are, what are the things that are meaningful to them, and then start scheduling some activities in those areas. The idea being that change starts outside in. So do these things first and the the better feelings will follow from that.
0: Jamie is currently working on a web app to help smokers with bipolar disorder quit. And she hopes the technology could help overcome some of the issues unique to this group.
1: One of the issues with smokers with bipolar disorder, you know, this is a serious mental illness and kind of coming up against that barrier again of people feeling like there are bigger issues at play here than smoking and not encouraging people to quit. So, Treatment providers often don't even bring this up in conversation. They're not talking about tobacco cessation. So one of the ideas with using technology is, well, what if we sort of take some of this out of the hands of the treatment providers and not make them a bottleneck to getting treatment? So if we develop a web-based intervention that's particularly targeted for the needs of people with bipolar disorder, sort of addresses some of those things that get in the way, like the belief that smoking treats symptoms of the disorder, that mental health will get worse when they quit, um, that that could be an extra help to them. Jamie and
0: Jonathan's work is fascinating because it isn't just psychology or technology alone. It's a dynamic and unique blend of both of them. They're solving problems as both psychologists and developers. A great example is engagement. On one hand, how do you keep someone engaged in their treatment on the other hand, how do you keep someone engaged in your app? And of course, the solution draws on both fields. First, some tricks from technology.
3: Well, we we do use a form of gaming where we have different levels that people have to work up to as they're building skills in the therapy we're teaching them. Uh, we call them tips, by the way. We don't use clinical language. We say, you know, learning differently become like an urge expert or things like that. So that's one. Um, The other way is we they earn badges and people appreciate those things. Um, They have no monetary value whatsoever. They can't cash them in for buying things at Amazon. Uh, And yet people want to earn them because they have a sense of accomplishment, just like you would earn different levels and different uh, badges in playing a, a game.
0: Jamie and Jonathan also used their scientific skills to make SmartQuit more effective. They researched which features helped people quit the most. And based on that information, they redesigned the app so that it could guide people through treatment. In short, they made the experience more like a therapy session and less like calling an Uber.
3: It's very different than going into an app for, say, buying concert tickets or, or having a one-time transaction they're going into a program like this. It's a behavior change program. And the question that's always in the back of people's mind is, what am I supposed to do? Uh, how, how do I how do I use this? How do I make this work? And so this is the kind of guidance they like to see. They like to see some structure the going through levels, and they like to see, well, what, what do I need to do to be successful? And so it's a matrix of different strategies that together make a program more engaging. There's not one silver bullet, there's a a multitude of strategies that together are going to get uh, enduring use of a program.
0: These two scientists have a very unique perspective on the tech world. They're not technologists by training, but they think in similar ways, and they're using the same tools to reach similar goals. So what have they learned in their journey into tech?
3: I have learned a ton, uh, especially about the field of user-centered design. And so the University of Washington has a world-class user-centered design program. Um, they have a certificate. They have a master's program. They have a PhD program. And this work has been so transformative for our research that we built a lab called the Habit Lab. It's a health and behavior innovations in technology lab. It's the only user-centered design lab at a cancer center in the world. In the past, what happens is a a behavioral scientist, that could be a psychologist, it could be a sociologist or what have you, will write content uh, and then they might show it to some users and they might iterate a few times. And that's pretty much it. What we do is we will develop exercises like the puppy exercise or the leaves on a stream exercise I referred to earlier. And we'll bring it to users and we'll, we'll show them visual mock-ups about how that might look, how the scripting might go, how the visuals might go. And we'll get a lot of rich feedback from them. And it's our user-centered design researchers who lead that work. And so our lab has really been this – it's been a triad of behavior science, tobacco cessation, and technology. So that triad is, uh, is where we've been transformed as a result of doing this technology research.
1: Some of what we know to be effective in terms of changing people's behavior is already in practice in technology we're on. So, for example, there's a behavioral principle called stimulus control, which means that you're structuring your environment in a way that it's really conducive to making behavior change. So it would be something like if you were to set out a gym bag at night so you would go to the gym the following morning. And the things that exist in technology to trigger behaviors are there. You know, technologists don't talk about stimulus control, but we have reminders, uh, app notifications, we have things that cue behavior. So the app is really doing these kind of basic behavioral principles that we know work. And when we work with technologists, it's interesting that we just need to sort of find a common language because we sort of know how to do similar things, but we don't call it the same thing. So there are some similarities there that I think that we, that I didn't appreciate before. And, and the challenge is finding the common language so that we understand what each other are, are talking about. Okay, it's time for The fix.
2: This is the segment where we ask our guests about the biggest problem they see in health and what could be done to fix it.
0: It could be a frustration from their professional work or one that they encountered in their personal lives.
1: There's just one rule. It can't be something that they're already working on. I think the number one problem in healthcare is that not everyone can access it. I think the solution to that is a single payer system. But taking a smaller bite out of things, um, I would say I was actually reading an article, I think it was in the New York Times a couple of months ago, about the United States having one of the highest rates of maternal mortality among all developed nations. And that's something that just shouldn't happen. Uh and I was also thinking about my own experience that my wife and I just had a baby five months ago and what that experience was like and It felt, you know, during the lead-up to the birth, there was so much support there, you know, all of the prenatal checkups, and then the baby comes, and unless you have some, you know, sort of complications with the birth, you see your provider one time after that at six weeks, And there's so much going on. I mean, people have been through extensive physical trauma, their bodies, sometimes emotional trauma from giving birth. And there's so many needs there. And I feel like our system is really letting women down at that phase uh, and sort of relying on informal caregiving at that point, like with the hope that your friends and family members can sort of step in and fill some information gaps. And so... I feel like there's some opportunity there to, since we're talking about technology, that perhaps uh, an additional monitoring function. Like, what if you just had some sort of checking in program? Like your doctor's office had this text messaging program, and there was some way of sort of flagging things that needed to be addressed so that they were addressed sort of in a timely manner, and getting people more resources if they need them, because you know not everyone has easy access to all of those resources. So just helping families be more supported when they're getting started.
2: It's a great point. It strikes me that, you know, when I get off a – Customer call with my cellular provider. I often get a survey by text, which is probably more interaction and follow up than my wife might have gotten after you know she had her daughter. You know, it's like exactly that's not that's a little bit out of whack. Yes. <laughs> so that's a great point. I, I like that fix.
0: I'm curious. So you mentioned that the high rate of um, maternal mortality. Do you have any idea what is behind that, or what, what some of the specific causes are of that?
1: That's a good question. I think the theory is that um, one of the things is the high rate of obesity in this country. So that's something that um, starting in the prenatal period could be addressed, but it's not something that's specific to postpartum care. Um, The other piece is the quality of postpartum care and not enough monitoring happening. I mean, in other countries, in European countries, people come out and do home visits with new families for a week after they give birth. There's much more sort of wraparound services than there are here in the United States. And so I think it's a combination of cardiovascular risk factors that were present even before the child was born, and then the quality of postpartum care.
3: Well, the medical system is medical, which is great. It's great at uh, addressing problems uh, from the biological perspective. We can run tests. We can provide people diagnoses. We can offer specific types of treatment options. Um, but I think the piece that's always missing from the puzzle when you have a medical illness is providing um, the kind of psychological care that, and, and also decision-making that a patient needs to make uh, when they're going through an illness. And, and to kind of ground this uh, for you is um, I've I've gone through uh, with several family members recently, the, witnessed their experience of getting care for their cancer, uh, my mother and also my father-in-law. Uh, and as they went through their cancer care, um, I was always struck by how knowledgeable the oncologists and the staff were about the the biological aspects of their diseases, uh, but not fully uh, trained and fully understanding about how to help the person and the family walk through the process of going through the illness. And um, that's a big missing puzzle in, I think, in any major type of uh, disease care, whether that someone's having a heart attack or someone is suffering uh, from cancer, is in how to connect people, how to be able to give them uh, tools to help them make decisions. How you're going to decide between different types of cancer treatments you may be needing to get, or a decision to have to go on hospice care. These are very difficult decisions for someone to make, for a family to make, and to be for a hospital system, a healthcare system, to be able to give them tools to help them make those decisions compassionately, and feeling empowered and informed. Because when someone in your family has uh, had a, a, a serious cancer, um, there's you don't have a lot of time to be making decisions. And so I think technology can be a big help in that, that can take – People's stories of how they dealt with this problem and how they challenges they had, ways they overcame these challenges, testimonials from people, and how they were able to to manage the process. Also, uh, advice from oncologists, from psychologists, from other professionals— who can understand the emotional needs of the family and of the patient to help that person make an informed decision. These, these things can be solved with technology. And right now, they're not. Uh, medical system is very medical. That's great. But we need to bring the full person and their family into the equation so that the journey through the illness, wherever it ends, is a caring and compassionate one. There's a
2: startup in Seattle, in the Seattle area called Nextio that analyzes LinkedIn profiles to look at career trajectories. And it strikes me that if there's some way to analyze like the profile of, and they basically say to people, Hey, here's what people in your current role have done to advance their careers. What if you could do that with people who've gone through similar disease
3: processes like here are the things that these people did that, that, yes that got them through the process absolutely here and here are the decisions they made and here's how they made that decision right so that then you can make your own choice and realize yeah that's going to be the decision we want to make that's going to, we're gonna feel at peace with that uh, and so I think it's um, the the uh, the res- test results that's great. But the, the experience can be a very isolating experience, and it doesn't need to be because there's a whole community of people who've been there before you who can go through that and get good advice. Not just going on a, on a listserv or an online group and people just telling you their opinions, but get, uh, get, get solid, vetted advice from people who've been there and who've been through it and have made wise choices.
0: Jonathan, Jamie, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having us, Claire.
0: Yes,
1: thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Jonathan Bricker and Jamie Hefner are clinical psychologists and researchers based in Seattle, Washington. Learn more about their work at fredhutch.org. Find out more about SmartQuid at tomorrowinc.com. That's the number two m o r r o w inc.com or download it on any Android, iOS, or Windows device.
2: You've been listening to Health Tech, a GeekWire podcast about the cutting edge of digital health, sponsored by Providence St. Joseph Health's Digital and Innovation Group.
0: Find more episodes at GeekWire.com/slash healthtech and subscribe through iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen.
2: Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop.
0: And I'm Claire McGrain. Thanks for listening.